I think we have the best legal system. It's just the people that implement it. They get lost along the way and forget what their job really is. He just kept on trying to remind me that who was in authority, who was in control, and how easy it was for my body to be found in any alley of New York City. It's a tough prison when you have the guards going against you because they are the biggest gang in the prison. They do that. They'll give a guy a life sentence and go home and eat spaghetti like it was nothing. And anybody that would say, well, why would you confess to something that you didn't do? My question to them will be, why wouldn't you confess when somebody's threatening to kill your life? The judge, he said, how you feel? I said, I'm okay. He said, well, today is your lucky day. You're going home. This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today we have two guests, and I feel really excited about today's episode. We have Antoine Day. Antoine Day, 60 years for murder, 25 years for attempted murder. In 1992, Antoine Day was found guilty of the murder of one man and attempted murder of another outside a liquor store on Chicago's west side. Convicted in 1992, exonerated in 2002. Antoine, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. And with Antoine... Uh, yeah. He brought a luminary in the criminal justice reform movement, Laura Caldwell. And Laura is an accomplished author of many, many books, novels, also a professor at Loyola in Chicago, and the founder of the Life After Innocence. Yeah, LAI at Loyola University Chicago School of Law. Got it. But let's go back to the beginning. You came from Illinois, right? Yeah, west side of Chicago. And you were a musician, and you had some stuff going on at the time that everything went haywire, right? Mm -hmm. It was a murder that happened Mm -hmm. at a craps game, right? Right. Two people shot, Thomas Peters and James Coleman, and Peters died. Right. And Coleman was wounded. And they're out looking for the suspects. How'd you get mixed up? Well, I got mixed up because, you know, I didn't come from that real cush community. You know, I come from a very hard, hard community, you know, the west side of Chicago. Even right now, it's the top murder, has the top murder rate in the state. And one of the top in the country. Yeah, in the country. Yeah, it is. So I lived as I live now in that same community. And I also, I work in the second largest murder rate in the country, in Lawndale. So how it happened was, I was known in the community because I was in the street. You know, I did some some things in the street. Today, I wouldn't be so proud of, but... You know, young kid, you you know, you did some things, and so you meet people. But not necessarily violent things. No, nothing violent. Had nothing to do with violence. I sold drugs. You know, I sold marijuana. I did what most young guys my age would do. So, okay, so you were, so, you were sort of known. In the, in I was the known, and then I was a musician. We played all the community affairs, concerts. We did a lot of things, and I lived in the community. But in this particular community I lived in, the guys that actually got killed stayed only a block away from my home, from where I lived. He stayed the next block over. And I didn't know them. They didn't know me. So when the incident occurred, they said that it was a black vehicle. So right away, they tagged all the black vehicles in the area. I had two black vehicles. I had a station wagon. I'm a car man. You know, I love cars. Right. So I had a station wagon that was fixed up. 
and I had a, a Chevy Blazer that was also fixed up. So these two cars stayed parked in front of my home. So when the police ran the license plate, they had my name. We had played in New Orleans. It was raining really hard. So when we came back that morning, there was a car to my door. So I took the car. It was uh, an investigator's car, Detective Connolly, I think it was. I called him. I said, you left a car to my door for what? He said, well, I want you to come in and talk to me about some things that took place over the weekend. I said, well, I wasn't here for the weekend. So we had the conversation. He said, well, just come in. He asked me, what did I look like? I said, what you mean, what do I look like? He said, so what are your features? Are you a big guy, you a little guy? I'm like, why would you ask me that? Shouldn't you be telling me? You're looking for me. I'm not looking for you. Then he said, well, the story was that you were, you know, about 6'2", like complected. I said, no, well, that's not me. He said, so you shouldn't have no problem. How tall are you? I got to be about 5'10". I probably used to be taller. Yeah, got but you were never 6'2". No, I, I mean, six less, two. yeah. And light-complected. You're not light-complected. No. Uh, yeah, so you didn't fit the description. No, I didn't. So I thought maybe they just got my name, so let me go in. So when I went in, he started asking me about my car. I said, well, I have two vehicles that's black. So he went over the thing with the car. He asked me, has anybody been driving the car? I said, no, my car has haven't, haven't moved. Been sitting all week. So he began to ask me about... Did I know these particular people? I'm saying, no, I don't know them. Don't forget, I took a lawyer in with me. I mean, let's analyze this. You were a 1,000 miles away, right. right, when the thing happened. Right. You didn't fit the description. Right. But still, growing up in that type of environment, you know that the police are capable of mm-hmm. pulling some dirty tricks, <laughs> right? And, and Chicago, yeah. unfortunately, is as infamous as anywhere with the, all the scandals that have happened there. Very well known. So you hired a lawyer, though, because you're thinking, you know, I better be, I better just take every precaution. Sorry. Exactly. So you hired this lawyer. And then tell us the story. I've never been one to trust the police anyway, because they've done a lot of things in the past. So I knew I should maybe take this lawyer in with me. So I called him. He said, sure, I come. And, you know, I said, man, I just want to make sure this go right. You know, I, I know I haven't done anything, so I want to make sure this goes right. He said, okay, he comes in. He came okay. to my mom's house, met me at my mother's house, and we went to the police station. How far is that? Maybe two miles. Two miles, okay. So I'm sitting in the interview room. Well, not an interview room. It's just a room, big, big open space, maybe 60, 70 chairs in this room. I'm sitting in a, in a chair. It's another guy sitting in a chair, you know, maybe 10 feet away from me. You know, we're just talking. We, we've been sitting there so long, so now we begin to talk. I'm like, man, I don't know why they got me here. He said, me either, man. They brought me in here and just made me, you know, sit here. I've been sitting there for the longest because he was actually here before I got here. And uh, we were just sitting there talking. Then the detective came in. He said, look, are you willing to stand a lineup? I said, in the lineup. So now I'm looking for my lawyer. Logical. <laughs> Where's my lawyer? Where was he? For this lineup, right? He was gone. He had left a message that he was going to his daughter's birthday party. So he left me in a police station. And you paid him $5,000? Yeah, he got five grand out of me. To drive you two miles. That's yeah. like 2,500 a mile. That's not yeah. bad. It's not bad. <laughs> Come on, man. That's incredible. You know, so. I, I just, I'm I, sorry. I can't. That's crazy. I got to take a pause here. How he got 5000 in the beginning. Let me just make, I gave him 2500 That was the going to the police station. Right. And. If anything else had occurred, then I would have gave him the rest of it. So, and it did. I guess that was the part of the setup. So now he gets all his money if he leave, and then I get arrested. So I felt like it was, from the beginning, it was a setup. So he had an incentive to get you arrested. 
I believe so. Oh my God! Well, okay. I mean, that's you know, pretty crazy. But because because he, what else could it be? He left. He didn't even start his job to finish it. So the, the start was to be there for questioning if anything. The whole conversation, he wasn't there. So you're on your own. Right. And then what happens? I want to bring Laura into this conversation because she's so familiar with all this kind of nonsense. She knows better than I do. I think Antoine's case is a roadmap how not to do things. Right? It's also a roadmap in a sense of what happens when you're innocent. When you're innocent, you're always happy to talk to someone because, frankly, you know you didn't do it. But how smart to get a lawyer, at least, before you do talk to someone on something you don't know. So that was such a smart move. We usually hear people going to the station all the time. Not everybody's smart enough to bring a lawyer. Unfortunately for him, the lawyer was very negligent and left and didn't come back. They then put him in a lineup, and the two gentlemen he was sitting with, the cops actually, we now know, said, go ahead, pick that gentleman out. Later, one of them quickly recanted and said, it's not that guy. But it was too late. They'd been identified and off Antoine was. So you got to remember, these two guys, both of these guys was heroin addicts. Okay. You know, and the, the one guy, I think was Coleman, who said, he said, man, they knew I was a dope fiend when they arrested me. He said, I would have said, my mother killed Kennedy if they had made me do it. You know, he said that because this guy came to court and he apologized. Coleman is the only one who apologized. But both of them came to court and admitted why they lied. Because the police had arrested them, these same two guys before. See, and they had a history with these same detectives. So it, it kind of way out, you know, once once you start your investigation and you really get to, to see how they, they're connected. There's a really important thing that happens or actually doesn't happen during the trial, right? which is that now that you've already been screwed over by the first lawyer, now you get a second lawyer. The second one really yeah. fucked you over. Yeah. I mean, also paid for. I, li I like what you said that. He really did. Your attorney neglected to do things that a third grader would have done, right? Which is he neglected to call the witnesses who would have placed you elsewhere at the time of the crime, right? Mm -hmm. And he neglected to call... The victim, there were two victims. One of them was right. alive. You couldn't call the dead guy, right? But the right. living guy, Coleman, right? Mm -hmm. He wanted to testify, right? And you see, sometimes to. guys don't want to testify. He wanted to testify. So all this idiot that was representing you, and I say that in the nicest possible way. Don't be nice. All this guy would have had to do is say, Your Honor, like in TV, I'd like to bring to mm -hmm. the stand uh, James, uh, Coleman. James Coleman. And then Coleman... Who got shot would have said that you weren't the guy, and then you would have gone home. And let's talk about that for a second. So were you not able to say to your attorney, hey, man, call the, call the witnesses? I did. I said it. And I had people getting and gathering the witnesses, people that was actually there. He goes to a crime scene so long after the incident and couldn't find anybody. He went into the liquor store asking questions about inside of a liquor store. Now, keep in mind that they said that this was actually going to be a stick-up murder. They said that I was robbing a dice game. And I saw these two guys who I had some issues with and began to shoot. This is what they said my intention was, to rob a dice game, a $2 dice game, which was a joke. A $2 dice game. Yeah. And you had two cars. I had two cars, buildings, and... A lot of other stuff. 
So these so you, people so said— So you really didn't need $4. Right. I, I really <laughs> didn't. A $2 dice game. So he said this, that this was the reason for the shooting. So when they came back to me with the explanation of why I supposed to shot these two guys, James Coleman has always said, you wasn't the guy. He said, and I told him that. He said, but man, I was sick. You know, I had a conversation with him, and he said that I was sick. I talked to this man on the phone, you know, a whole lot of times. And he even went to my mother's, to my parents' house, and told my mom that I lied on him for that reason. He said, and I need to straighten that out. He just couldn't get himself together. And he said it also in court. He said his life had really fell apart because he know he lied on me. But then the other guy, Darrell Gurley, his intention was money. His family wanted me to pay them. If you give us this X amount of dollars, we'll walk away. We won't even show up in court. Because Coleman was originally a witness against you. Right. And then he was ready to testify at the trial and say right. that he had lied. Right? right. I just want to make that clear to the audience. So ultimately, you had an option, which I find is an interesting thing, right? Mm -hmm. So your co-defendant chose to be tried by a jury, and you chose to be tried by a judge. Let's talk about that, because when we went into the courtroom, I kind of felt that this judge wasn't the judge I wanted. I didn't want a bench trial. I never wanted a bench trial. The attorney wanted a bench trial. I wanted to pick 12, but he denied me a jury trial. He told me that I waited too late to pick a jury trial. The judge told you that? The judge did. He said we waited too late to pick a jury trial. And I wanted 12. I never trusted the judge. Laura, is that a thing? You are supposed to demand trial by jury when you file your answer, when you appear. I don't know if he failed to do that, if he did that alone as malpractice. But what you do is you routinely ask for a jury. Mm -hmm. And then if later you want to switch to a bench, you can. So either he didn't ask for it early on, we never could suss that out, or he thought the judge would be good for them and then counseled him incorrectly. But in any event, he counseled him against his wishes and against what would have been hopefully a much better outcome with 12 people. And mind you, I walked into the police station. They had to run this guy down, the guy that's incarcerated right now for the murder. They had to run him down. They found him. Which guy are you talking about? Now? My co-defendant. Right, okay who they made my co-defendant. Right. I don't like claiming him because I didn't even know this guy. But they found him later. They found him later on and arrested him and brought him in. So now I'm demanding a separate trial. But they tried us at the same time. So I felt my, my rights was because I almost took over. I know I'm not an attorney, but I got good common sense. I don't want to sit at the table with this guy, and he is the shooter. So now I'm sitting at the table. So what he did... He simultaneously tried us in the same day, the same court, with the same people. Yeah, that seems crazy. So you end up getting convicted and being sent to a really scary place. Oh, uh, yeah. Pontiac Prison. Guys will tell you, welcome to Pontiac. In 15 minutes, you had your own personal shank. Your own personal shank. Yeah, and you had it. place was full of blood already. When you walk through them, those big doors slide open, and I ain't never been in prison before, man, it was... It was shocking. I read that there were 360 incarcerated men mm. in the prison at that time and five guards. Yeah, in, in one building. In one building. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that doesn't sound like a recipe for success <laughs> either. 
I mean, one building. And the guards had automatic weapons, and there were mm-hmm. bullet holes, and there was a sign that said, yeah, drop, to the ground. Sign, drop to the ground if, if bullets are fired. Mm-hmm. When you see that sign, were you like, am I in a, in a war? Yeah, that's what, that's what it was. You can be on the yard in five seconds and watch somebody get stabbed. That's the reason they tell you if it go down, drop to the ground. Because then they're going to start they're shooting. Gonna shoot. Being vastly outnumbered as the guards were, mm-hmm. that's their last recourse, right? I mean, that's a tough job, too. I mean, I mean, just for, for the sake of knowing what exactly happens, you know, because I know they, they, they exaggerated. So those guards are not moving 300 guys at one time. In the cell house, you move only a section at a time. So you might see 30 guys, two guards, one in the front, one in the back. And then the guy on the, with the rifle that's going to knock your brains out. And Pontiac is hell. Well, you were in lockdown sometimes 24 hours a day, yeah. right? I mean, there was a month There was a month where you were never let out of your cell. I yeah. mean, it's incredible that you have any mental faculties, you know, preserved no. uh, after that. It was more than a month. They used to lock us down in Pontiac for a year. They'll lock you down. So no shower, no nothing. You get a shower once a week. And other than that, you're locked down 24-7. Once a seven. week, yeah. 24-7 in your cell. 24-7. Six by nine. Yeah. With someone else. With someone else. Right. And a toilet. And every, I mean, every day they, they would lock you down. If an incident occurred, if somebody got stabbed, they'd lock you down. You'd be locked up six months. They'd let you off two days. Somebody else get hit, they'd lock you up another six months. And I'm, I'm talking about complete lockup. Pontiac was hell because it was like, it was almost like a super max, but it was one of the roughest max joints in Illinois. And every day you see either someone getting raped, somebody getting stabbed, somebody getting beat half to death, or somebody getting shot by the guards. It's you know? insane. And then you talk about the trauma. I watched the man in front of my cell. I had just finished working out. I came in to get in the shower, and the guard was telling him to put his hands down. And he was talking with his hands. And he shot him so fast, you just see the blood jump, like, from the first floor to the third floor. He hit him so fast and, and, and killed the man instantly. Because he was talking with his hands. Yeah, you know, because potential violence, you know, guys do that when they're getting ready to do something. So these are the signs, I guess. And he, he blew his brains out. But this place is, is what you saw every day. Either you came, you got up to go to work in the morning. I used to leave out 5 in the morning. I had an institutional job. So I work all over the penitentiary, death row, protective custody. I work all over the joint. So I get ready to leave out in the morning, and I walk past a guy's cell. He's hanging there. Just hanging there, you know. I see so much of it, you become numb to it. And that's a shame. And the scene you're describing makes Shawshank Redemption sound like a Disney movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just... It was. Yeah, it's as bad as it gets. Yeah. It's so bizarre that we have it absolutely wrong, absolutely Mm -hmm. backwards. And in Western European countries and and in Scandinavian countries and all over the world, they they take the opposite approach. Their thing is, when you get out, you're going to have to live next door to somebody, maybe me, mm-hmm. right? So at one point, a couple of good things happened, right? You found sort of hope and sanity yeah. in music again, right? And I thought that was a brave thing that you did because there were, at the time, no musical instruments in right. in this prison hell, whatever you want to call yeah. it, right? And you were able to convince the, the warden. Superintendent, Kelly. Yeah. It was my buddy. Right, so he, <laughs> at your behest, he ordered some instruments and you got to put together a little band and get a little, some kind of joy, I guess. Yeah, because we had been on lockdown so much and they had had 
some some instruments. They had it was garbage. So Kelly had decided that if that would keep us peaceful around that joint, I'm gonna order some more instruments. So he ordered some more drums and guitars and amps and it was called the Power Soul Band. Power Soul. Power Soul Band. And uh hmm. So we played, and, and most of the guys was in the band had natural life. So those guys are still locked up. So we had a we had a nice band, man, and the unit was good. And it kept things kind of, I mean, we didn't go on lockdown for like maybe a year and a half. You know, it was because guys wanted to get out. When we performed, they wanted to be there. They wanted to see it. You know, it's like you going to a party. Right. So they had a reason to, right. to not want to be violent because if they did, they would be deprived right. of this little bit of of hope, joy, music, mm-hmm. you know, life, distraction, whatever you want to call it. It is important for people to recognize we need to improve the conditions, but also bring arts and bring education into the prison, recognizing that 95 plus percent of people in prison are going to get out at some point and have to rejoin the community. When I w- was locked up, I heard a politician say, why should I spend $20,000 on a convict to get an education when I have to pay for my sons and daughters to go to school and they took school they took the college because you used to get a bachelor's associate all kind of degrees in prison and guys come out and make a difference in their lives they come out and do better than what they did when they went in because they was able to get a job become employed today it's not you come out you just out that's an extremely ignorant thing for a guy to say because if he had done any studying at all he would know that Mm -hmm. in places where those kind of programs exist. The people coming out have a tremendous rate of success, mm-hmm. staying crime-free, paying taxes, contributing yeah. to the community, reconnecting with family, all those positive aspects to society. So even if you're not looking at it from a humane point of view, just looking at it from a protecting and improving society point of view, the benefits are immense. And, mm-hmm. and only the most myopic and closed-minded individuals can see it any other way. So music came in to give a little something back to your soul, right? Give yeah. you a little bit of hope. And then you had sort of a, a guy you would call the your angel, right? Sort of appeared mm-hmm. miraculously, who was actually a real estate lawyer, right? Yeah, he, he was an angel for real. So let's talk about him. His, his name, <laughs> what was his name? Was it Joseph Howard or Howard Joseph? Howard Joseph. Howard Joseph, right. Tell me about this guy. Howard Joseph. First of all, let me tell you, I never admitted to ever being in love with a man, <laughs> but I love this man, Right. This is my little Jewish love. This is my man. Howard Joseph was an angel. You know, he came in, and, and what I liked about him was he was bossy, like Laura. He was bossy, <laughs> right? And he came in, and one day I was working out on the yard, and, and, they, and they said, man, uh, you got a visit. So you, you got a visit. I said, uh, a visit? They said, yeah, you're an attorney. I said, I ain't got no attorney. So yeah, you got an attorney. So <laughs> I, go, I go to the front to the visiting room, and there he is. He's standing there. Little Jewish guy, had on little raincoat, little flip-flops, looking like uh, Columbo. Remember Columbo? Yeah, and he come yeah. in, and that's who he <laughs> reminded me of. So I'm, I'm looking at him. So he said, he said, Antoine? He said, okay. He said, sit down. So I sit down, and I'm like, who's this old man telling me to sit bossing me around? Right? He said, sit down. So I sit down. He said, uh, I'm your attorney. I said, you my attorney. So I was like, yeah. So this is a joke, right? I'm thinking it's a joke. He said, no, nah, I'm your attorney. He said, your sister and my son had been talking, and I read your case. He said, and I just need you to be patient. We're going to get you out of here. You know, and I just looked at him like, this, this has got to be a joke. 
So he drove three hours one way to come see me. And he was about 72 then. And he drove back home and he drove again. He came again. And I said, are you driving away down here by yourself? He said, yeah. Give me a chance to think. So he would come. People would laugh at him. He said, I'm going to get you out of this. So I put, I put faith in that. He'd ask for nothing. He didn't ask for anything. You know, I tried to pay for his gas and buy him food. And he's, well, he had, a, he had a phrase that he would repeat to you, right, which was? That's when we made it to the county jail. Oh, yeah, he would, every day he would say, so you ready to go home? <laughs> I said, of course I'm ready to go home. He said, are you ready to go home? You got some clothes? Your mama bring you some clothes? I said, no. So it went on for like two years almost to that day. You guys had like a routine almost. Yeah, we had a routine, man. I, I mean, I loved his heart because he was consistent. You know, he was a man had no greed involved. He didn't ask for anything. He always told me, he said, nobody know your case better than you do. Pay he, attention to it. He was a real estate lawyer, right? Actually, he was a criminal attorney that retired. Uh-huh. Then he just did real estate. Got it. Just did real estate for years. And so when he saw my case, he, he wanted to get back in the game. He said, you will be my last case. And I was. I was actually his last case. It's kind of a miracle. Yeah. Actually, right? Yeah. That he would just pop up out of nowhere. And I could see why you thought you were being punked, you yeah. know, so to speak, right? <laughs> he did punk me. He did. He made me sit down. So ultimately, your little Jewish guardian angel appears on the scene. Yeah. And he did what he said he was going to do. He did. Because otherwise you wouldn't be sitting here. Because you had... I don't what, think so. What, your sentence was... You had two sentences, right? For two yeah. different crimes. Because Murder, robbery, attempt murder, and... They charged me with disarming a firearm within the city limits by a felon. They gave me a attempt murder. This was 1992, Antoine, and mm-hmm. you were sentenced to 60 years for murder and mm-hmm. 25 years for attempted murder. So right. he came along just in the nick of time because oh, he did. you were going to spend the rest of your life in prison. Yeah. There was no doubt about it. So ultimately, he won. And what did the judge say when he, <laughs> when he vacated your conviction? Oh, man, the judge was like... Uh, he asked me if I had any last words, you know, did I want to say anything. Man, I kind of went off in the courtroom because I told the judge, I said, this state's attorney knew all the time that they was lying on me. He knew all the time because he kept telling me, you give us what we want, you can go home. He knew all the time. So the judge said, uh, Mr. Day, he said, I, he said, how you feel? I said, I'm okay. He said, well, today is your lucky day. You're going home. And, man, I mean, I wasn't even shocked. You know, it was just like I was just standing there. And what was, uh, what was your, I mean, I, I'm just trying to, I have this beautiful picture in my mind of you and, and Howard. Mr. Howard, he just reached over and hugged me, you know. Well, let me tell you this part before we get to that good part. Let me tell you how the state's attorneys treated him. They used to laugh at him. State's attorney used to look at me while we were sitting in the courtroom in his fancy suit. And Mr. Howard would have on flip-flops. And they would laugh at him like he was a joke. They would laugh at him like, so the state's attorney would sit back in his chair and do this to me. He's pulling his finger across his throat, like, you know. Like he's slashing my throat, like I'm dead. Mr. Howard said, don't worry about him. I got him. He said, I'm good with bullies, because they're bullies. <laughs> At that day, you should have seen the expressions on these guys' faces. They just couldn't believe that this little man just beat them up this bad. They messed with the wrong Jew. The, the, wrong, the wrong little Jew, <laughs> you know. And he cursed like a sailor, so he was cursing all the while we were in court. He was MFing and all kind of stuff. He just didn't play no games. And this judge told me, you know, he said, you've been blessed. Because this man did his due diligence and got me out of there. 
I'm getting a chill right now. So he's become sort of a mythical figure. He has a program named after him. Oh, yeah. In Illinois and stuff. He's not around anymore. Oh, yeah. Yes, he is. Oh, is he? Because his, his work is my work. His spirit lives on in you and that's also right. in, in the program that's named after him. In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up just like a game-winning play on the field and almost got away with it. The sneak follows a twisting story of a once great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential. Now you can get help on your own schedule at your own pace and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor also, remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com wrongful. That's betterhelp.com slash wrongful. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. Betterhelp.com slash wrongful. So Antoine, the way that you found out about your conviction being vacated is a very unusual, in fact, I've never heard anything quite like it. Can you share that story? Me and a guy, Kenny Williams, we were on the yard at, in uh, Stateville, actually, when he transferred me to Stateville. We was working out on the yard. He was reading a newspaper that we we're not supposed to have, and in the newspaper it had, my case had been overturned. So this guy, had he had called my name out. I thought he was just joking. He called my name out again. He was like, man, so you got to come see this. So I walked over and looked in the newspaper. I was like, wow. So I called my attorney. My attorney thought I was joking, and he didn't believe it because he didn't know anything about it. Was it April Fool's or something? It's crazy. No, it felt like it. Yeah, okay. So when I told him, he went crazy. You know, he was like cursing me out, thinking I'm joking. So he went and got the paper. He ran out of his office, walked and got the paper, came back. And I called him back. He was like, it's, it, it is. They overturned the case. So he was trying to figure out how could they possibly do this because time run at that moment and you only have a certain amount of time to meet it before you probably miss it and miss all of the uh, appeal processes. So he went and got right on top of it and then maybe like a year later they moved me back to the county jail. Now that's another thing, right? So anyone listening would say, okay, well, it's in the newspaper. Mm -hmm. Your conviction's been overturned. So wouldn't they want to send you home at that point? No, not exactly, right? Not, not, in, not, no. not in Chicago, not at that time. Not, not the processes of politics. Right. They sent me back to the county jail. So now you go back and you go back in front of the judge. He listened to the new evidence. He listened to all this stuff that went on. So I was in the county jail for 
maybe a little over two years. I was a barber. I was cutting hair in the county and working in a barber shop. I was in Division 11, pretty good, clean, pretty white building. It was real neat and clean over there. And they moved me one night, maybe like 4 in the morning, 4 a.m., moved me to Division 1. I didn't know why. I hadn't done anything, hadn't been in no trouble. Straight and narrow so far. Put me in the cell with a guy. I didn't know who he was at the time. But uh, my son was killed. He got killed in 2000. I came home in 2002. He was 17. When they moved me from Division 11, they moved me to Division 1. And they put me in the cell with the guy that actually killed him. They put you in the cell yeah, with me, the guy who killed your son. And, right. it, and it wasn't a long time, but this was recent. This right. was fresh. It was real recent, right. And, I mean, my head is exploding right now. Mm -hmm. Like, And they did this on purpose, right? On purpose. Because it, it was, was not purpose. a coincidence. Yes. And it, it's also strange that they did it at 4 in the morning, right? It's the morning. not the typical time that they move you. And right. they've been moved for no reason, right. except there was a reason, because... From what I can figure out, they didn't like the fact that you were going to get out yeah. and that you had proven them wrong, you right. and and with the help of this magical 70-something-year-old uh, <laughs> attorney who, who who didn't dress right, right. And, and was being made better by the prosecutor. Right. So so they didn't like that. So the, it sounds to me, and I hate to think in terms that, that are so sinister, but you were a big guy back mm -hmm. then, right? Yeah. You were bench pressing 500 pounds. Yeah, I was in the fire club. We just called it the 500 club. So they moved you to this cell thinking this guy, meaning you, you're mm -hmm. going to kill this other guy. Because, right. I mean, it seemed, I mean, of course. like what, what I did recognize was I went back in my head for a little while because I remember when I was in, in Pontiac how the state's attorney had came and investigated me, was asking all these questions around me, and I was never supposed to know that they were even there. But I found out, and it was kind of, this made it a little bit more familiar to what the process was of them keeping me incarcerated. If I catch another case, then my appeal is not in void. It's, it's just not going to happen. So they put me in this, in this predicament with this guy. Either he was going to kill me or I was going to kill him. It would have been a lose-lose situation for me to do something or have something done to me. So, I mean, it's, it's a chess game. They made their moves, so I had to make mine. My move was to call the guard and tell them I refuse housing so I can be taken out of this situation. You know, because at this point, I, I mean, I got great common sense. I'm this close to home. I'm not going to blow it. Even for the literally the most extreme situation you yeah. could possibly find yourself in. It wouldn't have did anything. It wouldn't have brought them back. No. If I, mean, I had to beat them to a pope, it wouldn't have brought them back. So... Man over matter, you know, it just, at a point, you just have to think about the future. Oh, know? but that's an incredible, it's a mind-blowing story. And I never shared this story, so people don't even know about this. You seem to get all, getting it all out of me today. I don't know what's going on around here. None of us could possibly understand. Mm -hmm. Nobody that hasn't been through that right. could understand. But it's a miracle that you were able to resist an impulse that must have been as powerful as any that anybody could imagine. But it is. Uh, it's, I mean, it's 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 a thing. You know, I've I've always heard the term of feeling your blood boil. Mm. You know how you just feel your body go to a whole nother temperature. That would be it. Your, your ethers get to rise and you you get to sweating, and that's what I was going through because I have told myself over and over and over and over and over again, if I ever see him, what I'm gonna do to him. 
Right. You know, if I ever, because you always talk, you avenge your family. And you stand up for your family. And when you put in these situations, in this circumstance, you know, I, I always said that to myself. So I had to de-escalate immediately, wow. you well, know. It's almost like who could blame you? You're in year eight or nine of your wrongful incarceration. You've been through everything that they can throw at you. And now you just lived through the worst thing that a parent can go through is to lose yeah. a child. And then to be put in a tiny cell with a guy. But you're right. It wouldn't have accomplished anything. But it's easy to say from here. Sitting yeah. here is easy to say. So this is something I really want to highlight. Because in 25 years of doing this, the first thing that people ask me almost every time I tell a story like yours is, do they get compensated? To this man, to this woman, tell me they get, <laughs> yeah, and you should see, like, the eyes are bugging out. Like, you know, because if, you, if you're not familiar with this, and, and a lot of people aren't, mm. when you first hear one of these stories, you get so shook, right? Tell me, tell me they get paid. Tell me they get something when they get out. And, you know, I think it's shocking to a lot of people to learn that a lot of exonerees get nothing, period, full stop, end of story, right? They just have to go figure it out with this 20-year gap or whatever it might be. But even if you do get paid, because people see the stories in the paper, sometimes somebody successfully sues for a civil rights violation or whatever it is and gets millions of dollars, which they deserve, and still doesn't. I don't know too many people that would say, oh, I got a, I got a deal for you. Mm -hmm. You're going to do 10, 20 years in the most dangerous place, one of the most dangerous places on earth. Yeah. Like you literally be better off trying to find diamonds in a river in <laughs> Africa with, with crocodiles and hippos right. than you would be in Pontiac prison. I don't know too many people that would say, yeah, I'll take that deal. Yeah, let me, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go do that 10 years and, and give me the money at the end. So that's out the window. But the fact is that even the people who do get compensated have to wait yeah. an incredibly long time, years and years to get their money. And in the meantime, they're stuck in sort of a twilight zone, right? Mm -hmm. And there's no better example than yours. I want to talk about that. I want to hear it in your own words. The judge has just said, today's your lucky day. Do you want to go home? You and Howard are hugging, right, mm -hmm. Mr. Howard? And you didn't just walk out the door. No. No, there was a process. Pro oh, the process is, is terrible. So after the so-called release, it took me almost eight hours to get out of there, if not more. So they, they run you right back through the process. So I had to go back down in this dungeon in the bottom of the county jail, in the bottom. It's the last basement in the county jail. So it's really pipes and plumbing and rats and everything just in this place, right? And it's a room a little bigger than this room. And it's a pile of clothes. So in these pile of clothes, these clothes guys just took off coming in who slept in them maybe a week inside one of these jails on the street. And they make you pick out some clothes out of this pile in order to walk out of here. And they haven't been washed. Haven't been washed. Oh, man, I, I picked the biggest piece I could so it wouldn't really be attached to me. So I picked out a, a jogging suit, a black jogging suit with a hood because the guard says raining outside real bad. So I picked out, it had a hood on it. The suit, like I, I wear uh, extra large, this suit had to be a 3X, a 4X. It was so big, the sleeves was hanging, and it stinks so bad. I mean, a reek of just urine and, you know, but I had no choice. If I wanted to stay another day in the county jail, another two days in the county jail, because you can get lost in that system so easily. So I said, no, I'm going to grab some. So I grabbed that and the jogging pants. And held your nose, basically. Yes. Right. And just got used to it. 
You know, I just lived in filth. And the issue was that because it took hours and hours for this process to happen, Mr. Howard couldn't. I like right. calling him Mr. Howard because right. he's sort of a, a legendary <laughs> yeah, figure like to me that. now too. So I'm, I'm picking up after you. Yeah. So he wasn't able to stay, mm-hmm. right? He had another right. obligation of some sort. He had to go. I his, mean, I'm sure he would have loved Ill, to stay. Right. Right. So, so he he went home to take care of his wife. But then we'd never know how long you'll be there. He's not coming out in 30 minutes, 20 minutes. You know, it's a process. So, no, I didn't want to make him stay, so he went He went home. And at this point, nobody knew that this was going to happen this day, so my family wasn't even there. So I just ended up just coming out. They finally, I put the clothes on, they put me out, they kept my $43 and some odd change. Well, your $43 wasn't even there. It was in a different jail, right? right. So you had no ability to access that. And they, right. they, they send you out. What the, the date of the release was May, right? It was, it was May 9th. But May is not exactly, it's not warm at night in May in Chicago. No. Right? So it's cold and raining. Rainy, yeah. And it's dark. Yeah, it's dark. And I, and I stood in the rain, man, for about three hours just wondering, trying to figure it out. I had no money to get home. I had nothing, absolutely nothing. So I was just standing there, soaking wet, reeking of an odor I've never experienced in my life. Until somebody pulled up on me and said, you know, got one of my buddies, you know, he, he, he didn't even know. He said, so what you doing out here? I said, I just broke out. He said, so you need a ride. <laughs> so, you know, guys, quick to help you if you committed a crime, I guess. And this isn't just any street corner. It's 26 in Cal. So that is the hub of the Chicago criminal court system. It's the busiest court system in the world. It's not in a great neighborhood during the day. Everyone's saying, be careful, be careful, be careful when you go out there. He has not been in society for over a decade, and he has walked out onto this dangerous street corner without a bus card, without an ID, without a phone, without, frankly, much of an identity, and just, there you go. Well, people get killed right in front of the building. They just had an incident a couple of weeks ago. A guy got killed right with all this police activity. He gets murdered right on the street. It's so interesting and it's uplifting because at the end of the day randomly in the city the size of chicago your friend happened to be driving yeah. by like Yo, what are you doing here yeah. and like i mean that's another little miracle right but oh well, i'm blessed i know that yeah well that's an amazing thing for somebody to say that's been through 10 yeah. years inside the most horrific prison system nightmare for something you didn't do but it's a great way to look at it and the fact is it's almost like the energy field that Mr. Howard created, and then this guy was sort of an extension of that, like your other guardian angel coming in. But it, but, but there's no planet on which we should allow somebody to emerge from this with sort of an extra fuck you, yeah. right? Here, get out of here, smelling like you just mm-hmm. rolled around in the, you know, in the gutter, and then good luck. Not, not even. Not, I mean, even, like, not yeah. even good luck. No, I mean, just ho- get the hell out. Right. And if you get killed, you get Because we didn't care about you before and we don't care about right. you now. I'm not saying they necessarily have to have a chariot waiting for you with white horses or a golden thing or whatever. But, but I mean, a, a bus ticket would have been fine. A bus ticket, uh, <laughs> a, a phone call. Yeah, that would have been fine. How about a phone yeah. call? Can somebody come get me? They don't give you any of that. They're not responsible no more. A phone you call would have been good. You know, phone call would have been great. Anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time. It's like a part of my face. And the thing is, it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process. Warby Parker 
has solved the problem. I just participated in the home try-on program, and here's what happened. They sent me the glasses. I tried them on in my office, five different pairs. I showed them to my friends. I, you know, looking at other people, what do you think, this, that, the other thing. I look in the mirror. I picked the one that suited me the best, and then I sent back the other four. And here's the thing. The glasses, you're not going to believe this. They start at $95, including prescription lenses. I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses and you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone and then there's no obligation to buy. The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com slash conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try-on. And now, introducing Scout by Warby Parker. And Scout is for you people, for everyone that wears contact lenses. And here's the thing. They're comfortable, they're breathable, and they're affordable. They're daily contact lenses. They're made from a super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. It's everything you want from a contact lens. Order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5. Unreal. And then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more. Go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction. Try it today. Laura, I want to turn to you because you have a new book out, which I read and I love. It's called Anatomy of Innocence. Thank you. Yeah. And in the book, you paired exonerees, including Antoine, with legendary authors in order to tell their story in a way that is particularly poignant and also really sort of succinct. So can you talk about that process? Because I love the book, and I hope everybody will check it out, Anatomy of Innocence. Thank you. Yeah, it's called Anatomy of Innocence, and we basically are trying to, in fact, do what you're doing. We're trying to get inside the mind, inside the soul, behind the eyes of someone who went through a wrongful conviction. So we've broken it down into stages. The knock on the door. The, you know, the first time you, when, when Antoine heard his name was getting batted around, what do you do? When you hear guilty, because every exoneree thinks they'll hear not guilty because they can tell that the criminal justice system is not working well because they're in it and they're innocent, but they all think they're not guilty, all of them, and they hear guilty. There's hearing all sorts of testimony about yourself at trial, which isn't true. There's the walking into prison for the first time, dealing with the crazies that are in there, finding someone to get you out, and then the fact that Freedom is just the beginning. We wanted to show that sometimes they happen like this. Sometimes they happen like you see on TV where you see people outside holding up the arms. And other times, and <laughs> Antoine's is not the only case I've heard of about being released on a street with nothing. I mean, it's more frequent than not. It's just another bizarre aspect of the whole thing. So it is a bizarre aspect. And frankly, so many of these things are so fortuitous. And and he said he feels lucky. Antoine said, I feel lucky. And I think, you know, I've heard people say that exonerees are the luckiest unlucky people. And I mean, it was strange even when I met Antoine, I had taken another exoneree. Antoine has been working in reentry since he got out. And I took another exoneree to get services. He ran into Antoine. 
Antoine did not know he was an exoneree. Howard Joseph had died. And he also didn't know that Illinois was one of the states that had compensation. And he had about 28 days from the time I met him to file or forever it's gone. Forever hold your peace. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what I took from the book also, each of those stories, it's so fascinating. Again, I'm getting the chills. You can't make these stories up. And when you read them, and when you read them written so beautifully by such important literary figures as you have put together in Anatomy of Innocence, it's really a, it's a great experience uh, reading the book. So tell us about Life After Innocence, because that's a program you run at Loyola. Right. Life After Innocence is a clinic at Loyola Chicago School of Law. And we, in fact, have the Howard Joseph Award that we give every year right. in Mr. Howard's honor. For people who help the innocent without basically seeking compensation or recognition. So my law students and I, since 2009, have been representing exonerees to help them start over. Previously, um, we did a lot more. When we started in 2009, one or two people got out a year. In the U.S. now, it's three a week. So now we're focusing primarily on criminal records relief, getting their records cleared. Because what most people don't know is that when Antoine walked out, even though his case had been overturned, when he got pulled over by the cops, it still said convicted murderer. So until someone goes in and gets your record cleaned up, it's hmm. still on your record. doesn't matter even if DNA showed who it really was. It's still on your record. So we get that cleaned up, and then we push for legislation, which we've been successful on. So slowly we're adding to the services that exonerees get in Illinois. That's incredible work. And, and I also want to just touch on briefly Joseph Howard, who now has the award made bathroom. You can't see it on the radio, as I always say, but I've been watching Antoine's body language. And every time this man's name comes up, he sort of sits up straight and starts smiling uncontrollably. And for those of you— I'm trying to stop from crying. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you something, man. This is—it this is always seemed to happen, but this guy has really touched my soul in the way that he operated and what he did for me because I only pay it forward. And because of him, because of him, man, I mean, it means a lot. So, yeah, I carry him very high, you know. And and I want to give a shout-out to all the—I know there's a lot of attorneys that listen to the show who do incredible amounts of pro bono work on behalf of people like yourself. And to all of them, I just want to say that you have— all of our respect and appreciation because we couldn't do it without you. And and if anybody is considering getting into the work, I encourage you to to meet somebody like Antoine and see what it's meant in a, in a very personal and magical way. So we will continue to honor Joseph Howard by continuing to support the work. Now, as is a tradition on wrongful conviction, we always like to give you the exoneree, the last word. So we'll turn it over to you. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I do appreciate being here, getting the opportunity to share and to enlighten people of what really goes on outside of just the media and to thank people like Laura and, and yourself for having this platform. But most of all, I like to say where I am today is because of somebody's help. The things that I do today, I'm a court advocate for uh, juvenile youth in Chicago when they go to court to make sure they're not wronged like I was. So when they get arrested, I get a phone call and we appear in court. I support them also with the family. Again, I work in one of the most harshest communities in, in the city of Chicago and throughout the state. 
at uh, BBF Family Services where I'm able to give back to the community what Mr. Joe gave to me. Through Loyola and working with Laura and the things she did for me helped me create also, me and Jared Adams helped me create Life After Justice. Even after her work, we continue to do it, so we are springboard off of what she did. So what she has done for me is also paying it forward again and making things happen where you can help somebody else. And that's what we don't do enough of in this country, in this world. We're more worried about other activities around the world when we're really flat on our back right here. So I, I, I just really you know, appreciate the, the opportunity to say thank you and keep it going and keep calling me because I don't mind coming. <laughs> you know, I, I, I believe in the work, and, and this is what I love. You know, I love giving it back. Like you said, you know, I'm inspired. You know, I had a great mom. I'm inspired by my sister who, you know, I always said she talked too much. But then that particular time she talked at the right time in order to meet Mr. Joe's son, who I think not enough, but as much as I possibly can. I'm very grateful. Like I said, I'm blessed. I'm blessed to be in this, in this particular position where I'm able to help other people. That's how I help myself. I need to be an angel. I'm trying to learn it, you know. <laughs> so... Through Mr. Joe, I'm trying to learn how to be that example he would be proud of me to be. Well, I think I can say that he he would be, and I'm sure he is, and you are a great example of everything that's good and right about this cause. And people like you are the strongest forces we have because the stories are just so incredible and so powerful. And so I appreciate you being here and sharing that. I knew I was going to learn something listening to you, and I did. <laughs> You've been listening to a very special edition of Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. I want to thank our esteemed guests, Antoine Day and Laura Caldwell, and the one who's here in spirit, Howard Joseph. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps. And you know, I'm a proud donor to The Innocence Project. And I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and in so doing, helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. It's easy. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I want to thank our amazing producers, engineers, and editors, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number no. One and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. If you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Christoph recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Christoph seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi, out now 
on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.